Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Talking Force. Today our guest is Wes Barnett, and this is going to be an interesting journey. I've known Wes for quite a while in multiple roles, and I think he brings an interesting perspective both as an athlete, as an administrator, and then also now working in private sector, working on developing and promoting product lines um, at Thorne Research. So without further ado, Wes, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks, Tom. Always a pleasure to be with you, my friend. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that. I always enjoy our conversations and I'm excited for today. So real quick, I first met you when you were at the USOC and we were, I believe at the time you were in charge of the summer games or coordination of the high performance um, program. And then I also found out at that point that you were also um, a pretty accomplished lifter and actually knew some of the people um, that I had known from my first job at Salve Regina uh, and, and Dr. Jerry Willis, and um, he who was trained under Joe Mills. And so it was really interesting is that I know that Jerry had spoken to me about using dive style. And so I'll never forget when he pulled up your dive style that you had used. And I don't know if that was 96 or 94 Pan, Pan American Games on YouTube, but he showed me that. And so it was kind of funny to come full circle to now meet the person that you know, I had looked at for, for my uh, technique for, for Olympics. So can you tell everybody just a little bit about kind of your story, when you got bit by the iron bug, and then how you got to where you're at today? Sure. And, you know, uh, I'll, I'll try to keep this, uh, you know, pretty, pretty condensed and just, just hit some highlights uh, for sure. But, um, you know, it was really interesting. I, I grew up uh, in South St. Joseph, Missouri. Uh, a little town uh, about 30 minutes north of Kansas City and spent much of my childhood hanging out at, and this is just a coincidence, it's not anything to do with me, but at a facility called the Wesley Center, um, the Wesley Community Center, where we would go as basically a recreation center. And you could go and, and, and play all sorts of sports and just kind of participate in in different activities, but it was a it was a hangout for me and and a lot of kids in the neighborhood. And one day, the youth director, a guy named Dennis Sneathan, comes in, interrupts our basketball game, and says, hey, "I'm having a, a weightlifting meet today. You have two choices: you can lift or you have to go home." So just kind of looked around. I'm like, "Well, I guess uh, I'm lifting since I, I really don't want to go home." So I was taught how to do the Olympic lifts uh, that afternoon uh, about an hour before the, the weightlifting meet started um, so it was it was rough to say the very least but I ended up uh, competing uh, came in fourth place in my in my first competition and and I say that fourth place intentionally because pe- just to get people to say oh that wasn't that wasn't bad for your first event but there were only four people in my weight class so uh, I was dead last but as Dennis addressed the youth after the competition was over, he said, I'm going to continue training people who want to continue training. And I'm going to take a group of kids who can qualify to the Junior Olympics next summer uh, in Jacksonville, Florida. So for me, that was like, okay, wow, I'd, I'd never been, you know, out of, out of St. Joseph and, you know, never imagined what that was like, except for, you know, the little small surrounding communities. Um, so I was like, you know, really excited about that. Continued training, went on to qualify for the Junior Olympics. Uh, we loaded up uh, the station wagon. And for, for those of you uh, on the listening to the podcast that don't know, uh, you, can, you, you can Google what a station wagon is. Um, and we loaded up. There were, there were four of us that qualified. Uh, and then we took uh, Dennis and his, and his wife came along. And we drove from St. Joseph, Missouri, down to Jacksonville, Florida. I lifted in the Junior Olympics there in the 104-pound weight class, weighed in at a robust 99 pounds, uh, ended up winning my weight class, winning the, uh, the best lifter on, on Sinclair formula, which is a, a formula that they take your body weight uh, and you have a coefficient attached to like every body weight. And they multiply that by the amount of weight that you lifted and they're able to tell pound for pound who was the, the best lifter. So I won the best lifter award for all weight classes, 13 and under. And 
because it was the first time I was ever at the Junior Olympics, also won the Rookie of the Year award. So I'm walking out with, you know, three gold medals, three trophies. Um, and I'm like, yeah, this is this is the thing for me. At the time, I didn't know anything about the Olympics. I didn't know, you know, anything about um, really much to do with competitive weightlifting. To me, this was just kind of another activity uh, that I was participating in and, um, you know, was able to uh, have, a, have another outlet and, and express myself athletically. So when I came back, um, one thing led to another. Eventually, uh, I ended up getting invited out to the Olympic Training Center where I lived for about a decade uh, training there under Coach Dragomir Trollslan. And um, yeah, the rest, they, they kind of say is history. Oh, there's a lot to unpack there. I think one, I'd love to get your commentary, just especially today with how everything is so competitive and specialized. How critical was that, that you had a coach at the YMCA at the center make that step? And I, I think I can think of at least 10 other examples of where it's that high school coach, it's that PE teacher and the role that that plays in the fabric of our society, because you had no intention on becoming a weightlifter, but it was the act of some person who wasn't trying to recruit you for gold medals, but try to do, you know, show you something and exposure to something that I just think is, is good at the younger ages just to try it. And right now where everyone's so afraid of failure and everyone's so afraid of, you know, not being the best, <clears throat> how critical that was. So I'd love, and I know you would go on to have some additional involvement in weightlifting as an adult. What do you think kind of what do you, where do you think we're headed with weightlifting and kind of within society and physical culture? And when he, when he says weightlifting, he's not talking about going to a gold's gym. It's the, the formal Olympic snatch, clean and jerk, and the technical aspects um, of Olympic lifting. And sometimes, yes, they're used in aspects of strength and conditioning. But what you were talking about was performing those lifts at the highest level. So I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Sure. So it's, it's really interesting because so many people who got involved in weightlifting because it's not, you know, it, it's becoming a little bit more mainstream now, but I mean, you're seeing television commercials and uh, the, uh, you know, the CrossFit community uh, has really uh, shined a light on, on the Olympic lifts and, and Olympic style weightlifting. Uh, but back in the day, it wasn't, it wasn't like that. So there were so many examples of, of people that have gotten into the sport and it was really just by accident. Uh, you just at the right place at the right time and, and you get introduced. It's really interesting because had I not been there that day for, for whatever reason, you know, I may not have ever been exposed to the sport uh, at all, but you're exactly right. It was, it was something I played a lot of sports growing up, baseball, basketball, football. Um, those were, those were the mainstays uh, kind of in, in my neighborhood and, and culturally what I was uh, used to and, and accustomed to seeing, <clears throat> excuse me. And weightlifting was just, again, it was just another activity. Had no ambitions, no plans. I thought I'd lift in this, this one competition to get this guy off my back so that, you know, I can kind of continue playing and, uh, you know, enjoying the youth center and hanging out with my friends. But there was no, uh, again, ambition or uh, any thought to, to what the future may look like. But I was always in a situation where I ha had an older brother. He was two years older than me. And most of the kids in my neighborhood were his age, not my age. So I always had to sort of play up, if you will. Anytime that we were taking part in any sport activity, I was playing against kids that were that were two at least two years older than me, sometimes even more. So I had to get out there, and you know, you want to talk about not being afraid to to fail. I mean, it was it was failure all the time because the the smaller guy out there, first of all, nobody wanted you there hanging out with them because you were you you were an annoyance. Secondly, okay, if you are going to hang out, we're going to be harder on you. Than, than we are on each other and basically kind of do things to discourage you from, from coming back. 
so whenever I got the ball, if we're playing, you know, tackle football out on the school, you know, at the schoolyard, you know, of course, this is done with no pads. And um, I was I was a runt and I had to be quicker, more elusive uh, and know like the quarterbacks of today in professional football, I had to know when to kind of slide down and, and, and not take the, uh, you know, the full impact uh, of, a, of a hit that people were trying to, to put down on me. Uh, so it was, it was something that I was accustomed to doing. And uh, for me, I never, I never looked at things as, as, you know, kind of failure, right? Either, either I succeeded or I was able to kind of learn something as a result, but I never really, I never really looked at it as, as failure or losing. It was all, you always had something to learn from it or you won. The thing that I, that I was very determined about was if you beat me this time, you weren't going to beat me the next time. And, and that was something that I, um, that I really would go back to the drawing board. I don't care what it was. We could be playing, you know, tackle football, we could be playing basketball, we could be, uh, you know, playing pool or, or foosball or air hockey, whatever, you know, event was going on. If you got me this time, uh, chances are I was going to go back and, and put in the work so that it didn't happen again. A lot of people don't realize that. I mean, they, they look at kind of what I did throughout my career. And yes, I was able to uh, to compete on on two Olympic teams, on three Pan American Games teams, uh, I had about six or seven World Championships under my belt. But a lot of people don't realize, and they're they're amazed when I tell them this story, that when I got started in the sport, I wasn't very good uh, because I was still playing my other sports year round. I could do weightlifting, and my my technique was was decent, but I was still playing other sports year round, and whenever basketball season came, I played basketball. And then when that was over, I went back to weightlifting and basically had to start all over again. Same with football, same with baseball. I'd always have to kind of restart. So I was always behind when I'd go to a, uh, a national level competition in the sport and I would, get, I would get destroyed. I did not win my first national junior weightlifting championship uh, until I was I was in my last year as a junior uh, because the way the rules worked, it was like whatever age you were on January 1, that was the age you were for the year. So my birthday was in April where I turned 20. But because on January 1, I was 19 years old, you get to compete as a 19-year-old that entire year. So my first national junior championship, which took place around the April timeframe, I was 20 years old in the last year of my junior um, uh, um, of my junior eligibility, and that was the first national junior championship that I that I ever won. I went on as I got into the senior ranks to uh, to also take my lumps in the beginning uh, as well, and I won uh, my first national championship in 1992. But for me, it was. Um, and, and, and now at this point, I'm starting to learn about the Olympic Games and I'm starting to learn about, you know, kind of higher level competition and, and opportunities to kind of travel around the world and, and, and do something that you enjoy doing. So you have to be willing, I think, from a very young age and, and the parents, too. Uh, my parents were always supportive of whatever I did. And uh, a lot of times they didn't know, hey, if, if how I lifted was good, bad or indifferent. They just wanted me to have fun and, and wanted me to enjoy what I, what I was doing. So as I kind of went on in my career, it was less about, oh, I've got to win now. I've got to, I've got to be the best right now. Uh, and I had coaches around me who, who really emphasized the, the long-term athlete development. And I'll say in between Dennis and Dragomir, I also had a coach uh, named Steve Yavoric, who was at Johnson County Community College in Overland Park, Kansas that I spent two years there. But every step along my development as an athlete, as a weightlifter, I had coaches that were looking for my long-term interest, not the short-term where I could qualify for a team and then they could stand up and say, look how great I am. Uh, I was able to get this athlete to, to make this team. It was really all about building a great foundation 
so that I could have a, a, a very long career. And all of those athletes that were beating me in the junior ranks and, and enjoying that success. And I'm not saying that you can't have success as a junior, but all those that were beating me up uh, as a junior uh, on the platform there, when we got into the senior ranks, um, they were either behind me or they had quit altogether. So they, they really didn't make that jump and that transition uh, into the older ranks. So when you're thinking about things and, and looking through this lens of, of kind of long-term development, I was really fortunate in my life to have people surrounding me that cared more about my longevity than short-term wins and, and successes. And then because I was maybe just unaware, um, really unaware of, um, of how others were perceiving this as like, oh, well, you got fifth here or you got seventh here and, and you know, you're, you're really not that good and, and you really don't have that much talent. I, I wasn't listening to all that noise and, and certainly there was no social media at the time you know, that could kind of reinforce some of these negative things. But for me, it was just about the, the journey. And again, having people around me that were more interested in my journey than in these kind of short-term successes, I think really helped me in the long run uh, get to the levels that I did and, and really remain virtually injury-free throughout my entire career. I never had a surgery. I've never had a broken bone. Um, I've always been able to uh, kind of steadily progress throughout my entire career. Well, that story, that story is what we talk about long-term athletic development. That is, that is the goal. And it's so nice to hear that. And for people to understand that it actually does happen. I do wonder though, because it was Olympic lifting. And as you mentioned, you didn't have success till you were 20 or what you would deem as success, how that paradox fits with inside the current American model. You, you mentioned some of your coaches. <clears throat> they weren't necessarily just the local high school coach. You had a progression, and then you worked with a very accomplished coach throughout your career. And they kind of, again, shepherded you through your career. I think the young athlete right now feels this intense pressure to get more likes, to get more rankings, to go to more clinics. And you point out a great thing there where you say, my longevity was the focus not just the short term, because we see oftentimes people will try to peak now, classical periodization, peak now. Well, peak now at what cost? Because you can, should you? You could do four lifts, this four events this summer, should you? And really trying to come up with a roadmap, and whether it's using data and technology, whether it's using a larger plan, having some sort of thought put into what are we trying to accomplish here? And again, that maturity from just have fun, compete with passion. I don't care if you win. I care if you don't get back up. That's an important distinction, especially at the younger ages. And it drives me nuts when people say, what's good? What's good is if your kid can go into the gym for an hour or two and come out smiling and want to go back again the next day because you've created an environment where they feel safe to fail but more, more specifically, they're excited to compete. And that's kind of that art of the coach and, and using drills and using strategies to keep someone engaged because ultimately the top performers, there's going to have to be an internal drive to succeed. We've just seen time and time again, if you're pushing someone to be great and they don't internally want to be it, you're going to end up with a bad situation and most times end up in burnout. But I want to come back to... You mentioned the, the Olympic lifting. Could you just break down some of your thoughts as a purist of the role of Olympic lifting, particularly in performance, because we hear all the time, it's too complicated, it's too technical. I, I, was, I was laughing when you said, you know, within a couple hours, I was competing in my first event. And what I've said to people time and time again is that Olympic lifting plays a role. And I don't think that you need to get to international champion level standards to get a positive effect. We know that the catch is important. We know that the triple extension is important. The second pull is powerful. We know these things, but as anything, a little bit of information can sometimes get squirrely and go sideways. What's your thought? And again, you can say it as an athlete or as a, as a coach of the role that Olympic lifting can play specifically as it relates to power. And then also I, I do think the first time you drop under the bar, 
at full speed, there that's a changing, that's a, that's a maturation uh, moment where you literally throw yourself underneath this giant thing that is trying to crush you. And some people just can't. But the day that they do, those are usually, you know, breakthrough moments. It's the 225 bench. It's the 405 squat. It's the throwing yourself under the bar. Could you kind of give a little bit of commentary on that? Sure. And, and, and there is a lot there because when you look at the role of, of weightlifting, first of all, Olympic weightlifting, uh, you don't have to, as you said, you, you don't have to be uh, kind of at an elite level from a, from a technique standpoint. You just have to be uh, proficient enough and efficient enough where you can get the benefit and, and you're not going to hurt yourself. But, I, but I, before I jump into that too, I, I want to kind of address because you know, kind of people use this word failure uh, all the time. And, and, you know, they've got a definition of what good and success looks like. They have a definition of what bad and, and, and failure looks like. And I don't even like the word failure, because if you can, if you can really kind of recouch that and, and look at it from a perspective of you, you, you didn't fail, this is just an opportunity to, to learn, right? You, what, what have you learned from what just, just happened? And can you take those learnings and be better next time, right? So forget about failure. Nobody, nobody is, a, is a failure. The only failure is when, you, is when you don't try, right? When you quit, that's when you're a failure. But if you get knocked down and you keep getting back up uh, and you're learning, okay, uh, just like I did uh, when I was talking about out, out there on a football field, well, if I'm trying to at, at 99 pounds, you know, and 13 years old, trying to, to kind of run over the bigger kids and I keep getting my clock cleaned um, and I don't learn from that, um, I'm not going to have uh, a very, <laughs> a, a very long um, quote unquote career uh, there on the school ground. But if you can kind of take those learnings uh, and, and use them to your advantage, okay, here comes so-and-so, here's what he usually does. And, and kind of get out of the way, that's going to kind of help you uh, springboard into, into those successes where, where people are looking at, okay, you know, some people view winning as success. You know, I view, especially with my kids, it's just, are you having fun? Are you having a good time? And I think you, you, you express this very well. As long as they come out of practice or, or competition and they have a smile on their face and they tried you know, the best that they could, they could, that's, that's really what matters. And I think everybody is, is destined to, to kind of find their, their niche there. And it may not be this sport. I mean, some people play this sport because their parents played this sport may not be the sport for them. So it's important to try a variety of different things. And some people may look at it as, oh, you're, you're failing at this, or you didn't do good at that. Or it's variety is, is the key right? You've got to go out and, and kind of find uh, where your sweet spot is. And, and maybe at some level, it's, it's not in sports altogether. Maybe it's in, it's in math, who knows? But if you limit yourself to, to one track and, and only stay on that track, you have this potential to experience burnout, to, uh, to experience you know, this isn't, this isn't very fun for me and get turned off from, from sports and, and recreation altogether because you had, you know, that, that negative experience, but it, it may not be because um, you weren't good enough. It just could be because you weren't on the right seat on the bus. Uh, and, and that's why having a lot of different variety uh, is, is, is key and, and critical, which is why, you know, I played everything I could. And, and wanted to kind of beat everybody in everything that I tried didn't always work out that way. But at the end of the day, um, you know, I was, you're, you're better off for trying and, and, and really finding out that this isn't your, your lane to be in. Then if you, if you never try at all, you just, you just never figure that out. You never get to that point. Uh, but back to kind of weightlifting as a, you know, as a sport, as an activity, as, as something that's going to help with other, um, uh, other aspects of, of, of athletics, I really used the sport in the beginning. Yeah, I enjoyed weightlifting and, and going to competitions and, you know, and winning medals and trophies and things like that. Who wouldn't enjoy that? But 
on the other end of that, I was using it to be better in the other sports that I was playing as well, because I was never the biggest. I was never the strongest. I was never the fastest. Uh, but you would be hard pressed to find somebody that would uh, outwork me uh, and, and, and kind of push the envelope as much as I would uh, so that I could kind of get up there and, and, and be better because everybody is, is just striving to kind of keep making progress. So I worked really hard at what I did, but in high school, let's use basketball as an example, because I really stopped and I focused on weightlifting a little bit more in high school, but I really loved basketball as well. So I, I stopped playing football when I was a sophomore. I stopped playing baseball probably after my freshman year and really focused on those two. At five foot 10, and uh, in my high school uh, senior year, I was 175 pounds. Five foot 10, 175, I jumped center in high school against guys that were six, seven, six, eight. Uh, they were monsters, but they were big and they were slow. I was short, but I was very explosive. So when the referee would throw the ball up for jump ball, I could get up and I could jump high. I could get up, tap the ball to my team, and we're running on a first on a fast break before the six foot eight guy could even kind of get back down, you know, on the ground because it was just like so methodically slow and, and non-explosive that people would look and say, gosh, this guy can really, and it made me look like I was jumping higher than I was and, and more athletic than I, than I really was. But it was simply because I could get the point from point A to point B faster than anybody else on the court because of the weightlifting program and all the explosive lifts that I had incorporated uh, into my training over the years. So a, a, a ball would come, and I had very good kind of spatial awareness uh, as a result of that as well. So a ball would come off the rim. I could tell exactly where that ball was going to be and when it was going to be there. So if I got to it first, um, I would I would really make the, the trees that I was uh, uh, down in the paint against, you know, really look bad. It looks like, oh my gosh, he's skying over these guys. And really all it was, was I was getting to the ball first. Then when the crowd reacts with the, whoa, now the guy is, is going to show me. And what's he want to do? He wants to block my shot, you know, down into the middle of next week. And I know this, again, this is the learning, right? So all I do when I come down is give a head fake. What's this guy do? He's going to jump and he's going to try to send my shot into the middle of next week. So the head fake goes, get him in the air. I do the little lean in, create the contact, foul. And because I was strong enough from the sport as well, the guys, you know, people are trying to strip me all the time. And it was a, a futile effort because you were not getting the ball out of my hands. And I'd go up and then shoot the layup and, and go to the line for a three-point play. But this was all due to the fact that um, I took my lumps uh, on the school ground with my brother and, and, and older, that, the older group of friends, but also because I was training uh, in this explosive manner, basically my entire life. I, I never really, Tom, went to the weight room and did bench presses or, or did, you know, kind of your, your typical strength and conditioning exercises uh, at the time. Because at the time, you have to remember, weightlifting was seen as something that was bad for you to do. It was a, it was a negative, not a positive. Thankfully, that thought has, has changed now. But back in those days, you didn't lift weights. Uh, and if you, if you did, boy, certainly you weren't doing the Olympic lifts because people are intimidated and afraid of things that they don't know about. And really, this is what it boils down to. It's really easy to say, hey, don't do squats because they're bad for your knees. Really? Okay. Where, where is the research around that? Don't do snatches or, or clean. Don't do those lifts because they're bad for this. And, and, and you know, you can, you can get injured really easily. Well, you can also get really injured, injured really easily if you don't use the proper tackling technique in football. You know, if you're coming in with your head down, looking at the ground and leading with the crown of your helmet, yeah, you can get hurt and you can hurt somebody else. But if you take the time to, uh, to learn if you take the time to, to study and not be as 
fearful of the lifts uh, because you just don't know about them. And what we don't know about, we tend to fear. You could, you know, kind of really elevate your coaching game by just taking a step back, taking the time to learn and, and, and not throw everybody. And you talked about, you know, throwing yourself under the bar and, and, and catching the bar and things of like that, but you're not doing that on day one, right? Everything is a progression, right? So you learn to do it the proper way. And people put, I think, more emphasis and spend more time today figuring out uh, the cell phone that they're going to buy or the car that they're going to purchase. They'll do all kinds of research. Oh, I don't know anything about this particular brand of car or this new electric vehicle or whatever the case may be. So they'll spend hours pouring over the data and, and, and what, the, um, uh, what the information is about uh, this particular vehicle. But then when it comes to using the Olympic lifts and implementing those into a program, it's just so much easier to say, those are dangerous, don't do them without taking the time to do the research and seeing that from an injury standpoint, uh, it is actually way, way low, way, way low compared to, to other sports. But like anything else, I'm afraid of what I don't know. And it's just a matter of getting in the know. There's so many resources out there now with individuals um, and with um, you know information out there that you can go and you can read and you can study and try this stuff yourself. And again, you don't have to be at the expert level right off the bat. You just have to get to a level of proficiency where people aren't going to hurt themselves and uh, continue to progress and learn the same way that you did in your trade. So if you are um, obviously a, a strength and conditioning coach, you obviously have studied and learned and, and researched and, and done things to better yourself so that you can be uh, the best version of yourself from a coaching standpoint as you can. Well, the Olympic lifting is the same way. You can, you can start, you're not, you're not starting at this level. You're starting at the very beginning and you're starting to learn and build that foundation. And as you do that, you'll get yourself to a level where now this becomes more comfortable and you'll realize I had nothing to be afraid of um, after all, because it's not as intimidating as it looks when you're seeing somebody do it at a high level. It's not as intimidating as it, as it looked when you very first saw it, if you just take the time to learn and, and do the progression. Yeah, because I would always laugh when people would say that because I would always think of Olympic lifting in three buckets. The preparatory, so just articulation around the bar. So Jerry would spend a lot of time talking about it's a weird relationship. You're throwing yourself underneath this object that no matter what you're feeling that day, it's going to come down with gravity. And how you pull it up is going to affect how long it has that momentary pause. And I remember him saying, you have this slight moment where it's weightless and to slide in underneath it so it doesn't smash into your shoulders. But that relationship, and I forget, I, I'm, I'm butchering this for uh, how he described it, but it was almost like this romantic relationship with the bar. And you'd go in and you'd be like, did you go look at the bar today? Did you and what bar am I going to use? And, you know, are you in the bar getting together? And so it was kind of funny early on. And then the mobility drills and, as you mentioned, the PVC pipes, all those things. And that goes on for quite a while. And in collegiate setting, we would basically say, hey, for six to eight weeks, someone's a novice and they're really doing fundamental basic strength work or normative planning. Your Olympic role in the program is to teach consistency, discipline, and then new concepts, particularly as it relates to high velocity. And then, as you mentioned, you get some level of proficiency where you will gain something. You're not likely to hurt yourself. That's kind of the second level. And again, assuming someone's healthy, I've just never seen anything bad happen when you get someone to clean their body weight. And that's not going to win you any medals. That's not going to, you know, win you any records. But just being able to hit that uh, proficiency, to be able to send and receive load at that speed on your frame and then receive it on the front and all the other subsystems that are taxed, that's pretty good. And then that final level is that much longer periodization and programming, the third bucket, and you may never get there in college, but that's okay. But simply missing out on that psychological development in the first bucket, the physiological, you know, rate coding and synchronicity and, 
you know, timing aspect. You mentioned in the sport, you saw some carryover to knowing how to move yourself around players or around other objects. That's a learned trait. And again, the bar is one of the most consistent things that we have in our toolbox. Why wouldn't we use that? And that transferability has a much greater impact than I think most people think. But I want to know, you, you went through all this, and again, your tenacity, your uh, resiliency and, and failure not being an option as an athlete, I've seen you take that and transfer that into your professional side of things. And when we first met when you were at the USOC, I know that you know we did a, a lot of stuff together talking about what would that look like if we had a magic wand? How do we integrate you know, some of the, the data analytics we, we were working with at the time, some of the initiatives that you had at the time? And I believe, correct me if I'm wrong, it's 2011, 12, 13, something in there, in around London time. Where did you see that you had the greatest transfer of your lessons you learned as an athlete into the professional setting now going into the USOC? Sure. And you know, just for, for everybody out there now, I mean, um, I just want to just kind of add this little clarification that today, you know, we've gone from being the, the USOC, the US Olympic Committee to the USOPC, uh, including the, the Paralympic athletes, rightfully so in that mix too. So now it's the USOPC. And it has taken me a while just because um, I'm kind of used to the you know, that, you know, the USOC for, for years and years and years. So um, we'll just be sure to make, to make sure we, we give some, some love and appreciation to our, to our Paralympic counterparts as well, who, gosh, really, I, I've had the opportunity to work with, a, with a lot of these athletes. And, you know, you want to talk about uh, kind of overcoming adversity, not just in your everyday life, uh, try competing uh, at, in high level sports, um, with, uh, in, you know, in a, in a wheelchair or, you know, missing a limb or whatever, the, what they do is, is just simply a, a amazing. So I was very happy to see them get kind of included in, in that moniker. So, um, that's just for, for everybody out there. Um, but the, the biggest crossover, uh, for me, uh, I, I was able to, to, to just really take uh, that competitive spirit that I had, you know, always wanting to, to kind of, to push further, um, to, to really get to the, um, you know, to the, to the edge of, of human performance. It always, you know, would fascinate me in terms of how far the, the body can be, can be pushed and what does the recovery look like? And, and all of those aspects that kind of go into <clears throat> human performance. So for me, it's just that tenacity as a, as a competitor, because I always saw, here we are, the United States of America, we're against the world. And at the end of the day, what I wanted to do was help support other athletes realize their Olympic dreams. Um, and that could, in some cases, just be overcoming things to, to be able to make the team. In other instances, it's, to, to win a gold medal and everybody, obviously, when you, when you make it to the games, uh, the winning the medals, that's the, that's the ultimate prize. But, but for some, um, you, you don't know the, uh, the adversity that they've overcome to even, to even be on that stage. And sometimes just getting there is a gold medal. Uh, so no matter what end of the spectrum that you're on, you always really want to, I always wanted to really support uh, that that individual, whatever their dream was, whatever they were were trying to accomplish, um, I was fortunate uh, to be in a position where working in the role that I was at the USOPC, I was able to to kind of help support them in their journey. Uh, but it was really about helping them understand and taking lessons and learnings because I worked at at one point in my career, Tom. I was working with over 40 sports, right? So there's the Olympic side, there's the Paralympic side, and then there's a little side that, that people don't realize either. It's, it's the Pan Am game only sports. So sports that are just competed at the Pan American games. So I had about 40 different sports that I, that I worked with, which was, which was good and bad. It was exhausting for sure, but 
I could go to, to all of these different sports and, and learn lessons from each of them that I could apply in, in other situations. So what was going on over here in water polo and the things that they were overcoming, I could take it, believe it or not, and say, hey, badminton, here's what water polo was doing or soccer is doing, or, you know, it, it just didn't matter. I had all of these kind of teams that I worked with and was able to kind of draw um, from those experiences and those learnings to help Team USA be the very best uh, that they could be. And I think I just want to make sure people understand when you say sports, you're not talking about a traditional college setting where you have N of 20 or you have a team. You were in charge of NGBs, so the, the national governing bodies, people that were impacting not only the top performers, but also the sport as a whole. So if, if I just I want to ask, how many at that time of 40 sports, roughly, what do you think your impact as a leader was across how many athletes nationwide? Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting because it's a good question. The, the sports that you worked with, and, and obviously they ranged in sophistication. They ranged from the standpoint of uh, the number of athletes they had, the number of the resources that they had um, access to, et cetera. So in some instances, you had sports that would, that would just be looking, how do we, how do we get from, from the, being in the top five in the world to the top one in the world. And, and we're just there to support them. And I want to make that clear that we're not, we're not the ones training them. We're not the ones recruiting them. Uh, we're not the ones developing them. Those are all done by the national governing bodies. So what we do is we work with them to say, what are your needs? What, what are those gaps that are missing? And how can we come and help plug those gaps in so that you can be supported in a way because you are the, the experts, right? With these, with these athletes. How can we support you in a way that helps get you to where your goals are? So we had everywhere, everyone from, from, hey, we're the top five in the world. How can we be number one in the world to where do we find athletes? Um, our national team size is like literally 25 people. And the rest of the world that we're competing against, their talent pool is so much more vast that we just never have the numbers. So we basically, and weightlifting was like this to a certain uh, extent when I was competing. It's like these, it's a club-based sport and you just happen to get whoever happened to walk through your door that day. Um, but there was no kind of recruiting strategy. There was no process uh, to go out and, and kind of lure people into your sport. You just, you just worked with whoever showed up. So there was this, this dichotomy between, um, you know, those who were at the kind of very top of their game and those that, that, that needed help um, just kind of keeping the lights turned on, so to speak. So what we had to do was we had to start with the end in mind, right? What is your end goal? Uh, when are we trying to get there and, and work backwards from there? Figure out what, what are the things that we need. Now, our, our resources at USOPC, they were not limitless. So we had to prioritize. And if we saw opportunities where we could support this group, see, I was never fond of like pouring all the resources behind those that were already having success, nor was I in favor of pouring all the resources to all the, you know, the dark horses down here that, you know, the long shots um, either. I was always a fan of like, hey, here's this kind of sweet spot in the middle where we have opportunities to get athletes who are seventh, eighth, ninth, and 10th up to, you know, first, second, third, fourth, fifth. Those were the, the, where the opportunities were, but you really also try to help, let's call them the dark horses, those that were a little bit further away from the podium, let's say, um, to get systems in place first and foremost so that they can start to build a foundation from which to propel themselves forward from uh, in order to start moving towards that podium. So there was this whole mix of athletes, but I would say, I would say, my goodness, 
if if I had to kind of look and see uh, the numbers in in all of those sports, I mean, you know, in it's in the thousands um, easily, uh, in the thousands. Now we're not going to be able to to give kind of like white glove care and attention to every one of those athletes, but um, there were things that we we would sit down and we would strategize with each and every sport on to to kind of help them progress because that's really what it was about. If you are here today, where do you want to be tomorrow and the next day and the next day? And what do you need to kind of help you get there? That was our role. That was my role. But the beauty about this is the, the competitive spirit that I had, I felt that we could help everybody win, anybody win, no matter what sport you're in. And that was just kind of my mentality. So if I had something to learn from U.S. swimming or track and field or, or whoever over here that I could apply down to the, um, to the sports that were, that were struggling a bit and get them to, hey, we qualified for this, you know, this regional um, um, continental uh, competition, I should say, this continental competition, which we've never qualified for before. And it wasn't like we got a wild card. We, we legit, through our performance, qualified. To me, that's a that's a win, and so it's really about kind of making steps towards the podium, and it starts with meeting people where they're at, and then sitting down and strategizing. Okay, this is where you're at. Tell me where you want to be, and then we work together to develop a plan to help them get there. One of the things that I love, and you talked about it in a couple of different ways, there is getting everybody together, having a plan, having alignment. But being able to honestly say that you're a dark horse, I think a lot of strength coaches in many settings, particularly college, get the situation of this team's not very good. It's a new coach or it's a coach who's frustrated. I want to get to, you know, I want to get to C, but we skip A and B. We go right to the national team test. We look at what the best people are doing and try to copy it and realize that the fault in that is that the individuals that are winning the national championships, they're just different. They're different psychologically. They're different physiologically and they're different culturally because it takes a lot to get to that top level and taking that time to say okay what's our strategy set milestones like you said if you got people to the games that's a win then next year we're going to try to get three four five and then the next year we're going to get one two three and i think that's so important as you're building a program and again you had to do it in the thousands across a wide range of different types of sports but to the young coaches out there is having that meeting to say, okay, and then you, the sport coach, and all the other parties involved have to agree about the current state. And that is so important when building a program. No, you're, you're exactly right. And, and the other thing is you've got to get out of your comfort zone. You have to, to look in places that, you, that you've never looked before. As an example, so as part of my staff, I had biomechanists, physiologists, dietitians, strength and conditioning staff, sports psychologists. I had a number of subject matter experts, whereas in some of these sports, the coaches were either so old school or so like, let's just call it purist. Like this is the way that it happened for me. This is the way that I was brought up, and I'm just going to try to replicate that because really that's all I know. If you don't open yourself up to realize that there are others out there that help that can help you because you're the head coach and everything kind of the buck stops with you, basically. And a lot of times they are they are afraid to open themselves up because people are going to look at them and say, oh, well you really didn't do this, uh, these other people, and, you know, who's going to get the credit for it? Well, you as the head coach, if you're going to get credit for the losses, then you've got to get credit for the, for the wins as well. And it's those coaches that open themselves up to help. And asking for help is not a weakness. It's a strength. So being able to say, what do you have available for me? And then, and then starting to recognize you know, it's not like, give me everything you got. I'm not saying that either. It's recognizing from your team perspective, where are you falling short? 
is it on the on the psychology level? Is it is it psychological uh, for some of these athletes? They get to a point, in, a certain point, and they can't get over a hump. Is it something from a technology standpoint that hey, if we had this piece of technology that could tell us what is happening in these instances, you know, we could get better. Is it strength and conditioning? Is it your your athletes are just not fit? They're weak. They're they they don't have the endurance. What is it? Or, or what combination is it? And you, as the head coach, you are basically the, the orchestra leader. Your assistant coaches and all your support staff, those are, that, that's your orchestra. They're the ones playing the music. You are in this position where you get to conduct the music, right? So if it doesn't sound how you want it to sound, there's an opportunity for you to bring in more oboes or you know, more drums or whatever the case may be. But you as a coach have to analyze and realize where am I, where, where am I falling short? And it's not, I just got to yell louder or we got to just like work them harder. That is, is in, in a lot of cases going to be counterproductive. It's got to be you recognizing um, where those needs are. And then even if you don't have them on your staff, you know, the one thing that I have found across uh, all the sports that I work with, coaches love coaching and they love helping others. So let's say you're at a university where you don't have a support staff of, of, of 15 or 20 people and you don't have a dietitian and you don't have, you know, um, you know, a biomechanist or any of those things um, at your disposal. Definitely you can reach out to your counterparts, you know, at other schools and kind of find out what they're doing, kind of find out how they're doing it. Or in a lot of cases within your own uh, university, I'm sure you have a physiology department. I'm sure you have a biomechanics department. I'm sure you have something to do with, with nutrition, you know, so you can kind of look outside the normal realm of sport and start to kind of bring these people in. And what one thing that really drives me crazy, Tom, is when I work with these sports, you don't know us because you've never played our sport, so you really can't help us. And it's just like, well, what I do know is human performance. And I know that you have to be a human before you can be an athlete. So if you can't get the human side dialed in, then the athlete side isn't going to work. So if we can kind of let our guards down a little bit and say, hey, just because you, um, you've you never played lacrosse um, and you don't have any experience in lacrosse, it doesn't mean that you can't help the athletes be better lacrosse players. Um, I'm not going to sit down and talk X's and O's with you on, you know, on a, on a game plan that way. But if you're telling me your competitors are outrunning you. If you're telling me that you've got injuries out the wazoo, if you're telling me that, you know, come crunch time, our team just kind of melts and, and falls apart, that isn't going to be fixed by screaming at them. That isn't going to be fixed by adding another hour of practice to, uh, to the already long practice. But it can be fixed or at least addressed by bringing others in to address those specific things that are going on, regardless if they know about your sport or not. And that's something I think that is critical that many coaches miss out on for, I don't know, sometimes it's ego, sometimes it's just ignorance, sometimes it's just an unwillingness to, to kind of change and, uh, and do things different. And, you know, one of my, one of my good, good friends is a, is a strength and conditioning coach named Al Vermeil. And you may know Al, you know, he's won championships uh, in, in baseball. He's won uh, championships in football. And he was a longtime Chicago Bulls strength and conditioning coach. And what he would do to help build his staff up, because he didn't want his staff to be one-dimensional, he would bring in subject matter experts in a variety of different places. And he was comfortable enough in his own skin that he, he, he didn't take the, the standpoint of, well, if I bring this guy in to talk to my staff, um, it's going to make me look bad because 
I'm the I'm supposed to know everything. Well, you can't know everything. So Al would bring people in to talk to his staff so that he and his staff could learn. Why? Well, the more diverse your staff is from an education and skill set standpoint, the more things they can apply to the players, the more things you can apply to the players, the better off that they're going to be and the better off they are, you would think that the results are then going to follow. So it's really about setting ego aside and really evaluating what are the things that we're missing and what are the resources that I have available to me through my peers, through my university, through my current staff, or somewhere else out there that I can kind of bring in uh, so that my staff can learn and grow. That, in my mind, is the secret formula for success. Couldn't agree more. And one of the things that I know we've spoken about throughout the years is that was one of the aspects I tried to bring um, when I went over to Yale is to try to connect people. So oftentimes in institutions and organizations, they're silos. But I, I did get that from you. I remember having conversations where you would say, yeah, I spoke to, you know, badminton and I learned something there and spoke to bobsled and then connected with this person. And it wasn't necessarily that you're going to find the answer in all these different places. But what it does is it changes your perspective 5% and then 5% and 5%. And people would ask me, how did you end up making this? Or how did you end up with this protocol? Oh, we got this from swimming. What does lacrosse have to do with swimming? Oh, we got this from the military. Oh, we got this from, you know, NASA. How does that apply to fencing? And so that willingness to kind of have the exploratory mind really was an advantage, but then also the action items that if you're in this room, to be clear, you bring value to this program. So everyone at the table needs to know that when we're staring at the objective from all our different angles, we are much better as a unit because we can see everything and we don't have blind spots. And when we would have Dr. Kramer come and visit, he would often remind us, ignorance makes you vulnerable. And if we're mm -hmm. trying to win programs, it is incumbent on you if you have a seat at the table in the room to speak up. And then as a leader, I would say, hey, we will listen. Even if I didn't agree, even if I didn't necessarily see what they were seeing, I thought it was so important that people felt comfortable enough that in this room and in this setting, I want you to speak up. And then when we walk out the room, we're in alignment because we have seen this, this challenge from every possible angle. And so if you're a young coach out there, Try to figure out how to have those conversations in that environment, and then you can start plugging the people in. Well, and we would go so so far outside the box that people would look at us like we're like we're crazy, and it's just like, and, and and say, well, what do you mean by that? Well, one of the things that we that we looked at doing because we we would bring every year we would bring all of the coaches together to to kind of learn from each other, and and when we were talking about you know human performance and high performance and um, one of the things that you have to do is on competition day, you, you have to bring your, your A game. You have to be at your best. So we started looking and said, well, what other professions out there that every single day they've got to be at the top of their game or because, because failure is not an option. So we looked at even bringing in like heart surgeons as an example, um, rock musicians. As an example, what, what does that have to do with sport? These are individuals that have lessons for you to learn from, because when you get on that stage and you've got 50, 60, 70,000 people out in front of you, you've got to perform. You've got to be at your best. When you get somebody on this operating table whose life is literally in your hands, you better be a high performer, right? You better have your stuff together. So I think that in every aspect of life, not just in sport, there are people and individuals that you can learn from who are the best at what they do. They are high performers. And not only are they high performers like, oh, well, we've got a, you know, we've got a world championships that we're focusing on. So we need to be a high performer on that day. They've got to be a high performer every single day that they take the stage, so to speak. And you can, you can learn from from those individuals. And we, we would think so far out of the box. It's like whoever we could learn from, that's who we wanted to bring in. And I got that from my friend, Alvar Mill. 
Well, Wes, thank you so much. We could continue to talk, but I think it's best. Let's take a minute and we'll break. Uh, tune in next week. We'll talk about part two here of Wes's journey, both from athlete to coach to now in the supplement world at Thorne.